If, if you knew that you had exactly one year left to live, how would you spend it? What would you do? How would you choose to live if you knew for certain that your time was short? Well, Tim McGraw wrote a song about it, probably one you're familiar with, uh, about a guy who got a bad diagnosis, and so what did he do? He went skydiving. He went Rocky Mountain climbing. He spent 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. That song will be in your head the rest of the day. You're welcome. <laughs> but you know, the point of that song resonates with us because we know that if our, if our time was short, we would certainly live differently in the light of that. You know you would. That, that we'd risk more, like the song says. I'm sure you would. We'd probably worry less about unimportant things. We would leave things that don't matter to the side because why would we worry about them in light of our new reality? We would, uh, we'd probably spend less time on Facebook looking at what other people are doing. We'd, uh, we'd stop putting off things that we've always wanted to do. We'd probably treat people differently. Because now, all of a sudden, relationships are more significant, perhaps, than they were before. And see, it's all because our perspective has come to a very fine point. All the periphery, all the distraction is now gone for us. If I know my time is short, then I want to make it count. Well, Martin Luther had a very different perspective, much different than Tim McGraw. Martin Luther was the great Christian reformer from the 1500s. And he was once asked... Martin, if you knew today was your last day, what would you do? Luther said, I would plant a tree and pay my taxes. Now, that's just got country hit written all over it, doesn't it? I went tree planting. I went tax paying. You know, it didn't really have the same ring to it. Why would Martin Luther give such a strange and mundane answer to that question? Well, his point was, as Christians, we're meant to live every day as if we are in the last day days. And we don't have to live those days in extreme activities. We live them, Luther said, in ordinary everyday faithfulness. If I knew today was my last, I'd live it like every other day, because that's how I'm supposed to live anyway. And at least to some degree, Martin Luther was echoing the Apostle Peter. What we just read here in 1 Peter 4, Peter essentially gives the scenario to us about the shortness of our time and with it comes very clear directives on how we're meant to live, what we're supposed to do in light of that. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we, you just saw it. There's not a whole lot of bucket list kind of stuff in what Peter's going to tell us today. If you and I have bucket lists, that's wonderful. That's great. But I don't think God's ultimate concern for my life is that I get to visit Italy before I die. Okay? I hope to. That would be fine. That would be great. But that's, I don't think that's God's primary objective for me, God's greater concern, we're going to find, is what he has before us in his word today. And my prayer for myself, my prayer for us today, as we preach through this, is that what we're told today would take priority over any lesser ambitions that we have. If you've got a bucket list, great. But this is what God calls us to do in the midst of the vapor that is our life. 1 Peter chapter 4. So let's look at it piece by piece, beginning in verse 7. Peter says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now, when Peter says the end of all things is near, or maybe your translation says the end of all things is at hand, he's not making a prediction here. And we're not one of those churches, okay? That we, we predict a certain date for the, for the end to come, for Jesus to return. Jesus himself said, Acts chapter 1, it is not for you to know 
or even to predict the end of all things. That's not for us to know. What Peter is saying is that the death and the resurrection of Jesus has inaugurated for us the last days. We are in what the Bible calls the last days or the last generation because there's nothing left to be done except for Jesus to return and to usher in his eternal kingdom. Everything that God has done through his son Jesus Christ has been accomplished, and now all that's left to do is for him to come back. And Jesus said that day is going to come like a thief in the night at a time when you least expect it. It's not worth trying to predict but it is something that we ought to live in the light of. Peter says, your time is short. The end is at hand. You don't know when it's coming, but it's coming. And so we're meant to live with a sense of imminence, a sense of urgency and purpose. That's the point here. Okay, well, what are we supposed to do? And Peter tells us something that runs counter to our assumptions. It certainly does for me. If the time is short, if things are urgent... Surely God wants us to get about the business of doing really big, important things, obvious, uh, explosive kind of things, like, right, tell me what to do. And yet, Peter tells us something altogether different. And I want to encourage you here on this point as we walk through it, that what the Bible is calling you and me to right now requires zero talent. It requires no talent at all. It requires no platform. It requires no podcast. It makes no difference how many followers you have on social media or if you even have a social media account to begin with. It requires no wealth. What the Bible is going to call us to is something that every last one of us can do and ought to be doing in the midst of this context here. It doesn't require anything special from you except faithfulness. And so Peter's going to give us four commands here that all of us can do. And beginning in verse 7, he gives us that first command. He says, "...in light of the shortness of time..." He says, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. He says, focus your mind and your heart. Be diligent to pray. And this is interesting to me again because Peter says, the time is short, so slow down and pray. Pray. Frankly, the last thing I would do, I mean, I'm just telling you the truth. If I knew my time was short, I would get about being busy. I don't, know that I, I don't know that my in, in, uh, inclination would be to stop and pray, but that's the very first thing Peter says. Now, pray about what? He doesn't tell us. He doesn't tell us what to pray for, but he's careful to mention it first. And it's the issue of primacy here. It comes first, because for Peter, it's the most important thing. And here's why I think Peter starts with prayer. First and foremost, because it is, for all of us, prayer is an act of complete dependence. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but prayer is an act of dependence. It's a statement of helplessness. If I could do it myself, in theory, I wouldn't need to pray about it, would I? But no, we come to God to acknowledge that God is something that we aren't. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, not mine. God, you are supreme, not me. I'm dependent on you. And of course, in prayer, we ask of God things that only God can do. We ask for miracles. We ask for his strength and for his power. So to pray is to say, Lord, you are supreme above all things, and I am only alive because of your will. I'm only drawing breath right now because you uphold it by your power. I'm only forgiven because you sent your son to forgive me. Otherwise, I'm a dead man walking. I'm only adequate to do any good thing because, God, you make me adequate by your grace. See, that's the posture that we take in prayer. It's an act of dependence. 
And maybe that explains why I don't do it as often as I should. It's because I don't like to be dependent on someone else, even God. I want to be uh, the one in control of my own life. Maybe you can resonate with that. And that's why this command shakes me, because uh, it's not my habit to pray like my life really depends on it. Uh, My life is marked by a lot of activity, even a lot of thought and contemplation. I like to sit and think. But God's got to, to, to do the work in my heart to bring me to a posture of prayer because prayer is the acknowledgement that, God, I can't, I can't do anything apart from your grace. And that's why Peter says, listen, the end is near, and so get serious about prayer because you can do nothing apart from God's power. And so my, my personal takeaway, if you can't tell, this is a place of struggle for me. I need to grow in this. My personal takeaway is that I'm only really going to pray to the degree that I truly feel a need for God and His grace. Uh, You're only going to pray, truly pray. Not just at meals, not just out of habit. You're only going to really pray to the degree that you believe you need God. And I think that's why Peter gives it to us first and foremost. It is an urgent need, not something for us to be putting off. So set your mind to it. Pray. And that's a, he's addressing first our communion with God. That's appropriate. But now Peter's going to turn, and his other, the, the next three commands, he's going to relate to the communion that we have with each other. He's dealt with you and God, and now it's you and me, okay? These next three verses. Uh, verse 8, the relationship that we have with others in the church, he says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. The primary command... I'm not sure if it's the primary command uh, in terms of number, but in terms of force, the primary command for the church in the New Testament is that we love each other. Jesus qualified it this way. He said, just as I have loved you, so you now go and love one another. There's a quality to that kind of love that Jesus is the one who defines it and not me. And Peter, now for the second time in this letter in 1 Peter, he gives us the word fervent when he speaks of love. It's the second time he's done this. That word fervent means to stretch the limits of something all the way. It's, it's, the, it's the term that was used for an athlete, an athlete who exerts all of her energies just to get across that finish line. There's nothing left at the end of the race. It's all been expended. That's the idea uh, behind the word fervent And Peter says, you fervently love one another. That's a love that goes beyond uh, being nice and cordial. That's a love that goes beyond convenience or preference. That's a love, frankly, that hurts. That's the idea of being stretched thin. True love hurts. And if you've ever been deeply in love with anybody, you know this to be true. Because true love requires sacrifice. It requires repentance. It requires change. I can't be what I used to be in light of this person now. I've got to change for them. Right? It hurts. It hurts because it goes beyond our preferences. I can't just love you when it's easy to love you. I've got to love you all the way through. And you've got to do the same for me. And it hurts. Love hurts because it, in- it involves forgiveness. And you notice that's the second part of that little verse right there? A great statement right here. He says, be fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. We've got two boys. They're five and seven. They like to tussle, as boys do. But you know, if you you have boys or have been around boys or you grew up in a house of boys, you know that there's a certain threshold 
where tussling becomes all-out war, it just gets too far, and they start gouging for eyes and things like that. And so Jennifer or me, one of us, whoever's closest, we'll go and run and get in between them and separate them, and then we'll give them that classic parenting lecture. Your brothers! Brothers are supposed to love each other. Cut it out! Now, are they listening at that moment? No, they're just trying to see who can get the last kick in. You know, they're kind of trying to kick up, you know, around us. Who can get the last one in? They're not listening. Um, see, the point here is that when, when we talk about the church of God, the church, we are not a random group of people who just decided to show up in the same building for an hour on Sunday. Now, it may feel that way, and some people treat it that way. It's that flippant. But that is not what the Scripture calls us to. The Scripture says that we are, the church is, the household of God. We are the family of God. And because we are sinners, of course, we end up hurting each other. Family hurts each other. It's inevitable. That's true in in an actual household, and it's certainly true in the church. But what Peter says is that we have a, a, a default setting that is fervent love that even when we get hurt and even when we do the hurting, that we love each other through those things because love, genuine love, covers a multitude of sins. That God, in a sense, could lecture us when we've, when we've done harm to one another, when we've backstabbed, when we've gossiped against, when we've let each other down. That God could look at us and say, you're brothers and sisters. You're meant to love each other, not just because we're told to, but because a change has been affected in us that now binds us together. We are uh, family. That's what it means to be the church. Love doesn't see who can get the last kick in. (laughs) Okay, love is committed to forgiveness. Every one of us, I know this for a fact, every one of us desires to be truly known and truly loved at the same time. We want to be known, but we're afraid to be known because if somebody knows me, they might not love me, right? And so to be known fully and loved fully is the desire of every human heart. We certainly have that in God, but that's meant to mark the church. That of all the communities, of all the social clubs, of all the, uh, the, the Olympic activities, whatever it is in the world that brings people together, the church is meant to be the city on a hill. That we would be the one community sincerely that loves each other in spite of ourselves and beyond our sin. No no other community can do this. The church, at least ideally, is the only one that can, and that's what Peter's calling us to, a fervent love that covers a multitude of sins. I'll tell you guys the truth. When When I pray for Harvest Church, I never pray that God will make us a big, impressive looking church. I really don't care about that. I don't think you probably care either. I pray that God would do this, that God would develop within us and among us this kind of love that is stronger than sin itself, that is stronger than our failures and our preferences, that we would love each other like this. That's why I think Peter says, above all, love each other this way. This is our priority. That's the second command, that we pray and that we love. And then thirdly, Peter tells us, you see verse 9? He says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. He must have known that I'd be reading this 2,000 years later. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling about it, okay? In the culture of early Christianity, the people that Peter is writing to here initially, hospitality was, was absolutely essential for them. 
The church didn't meet in public buildings. They met in homes. They met in people's homes. Traveling missionaries, people who were going for the spread of the gospel, they relied on the hospitality of strangers to them who were brothers and sisters in Christ, that they could be housed and fed along the way in their journeys. Uh, Christians who were being persecuted because of their faith, when they were on the run, when they were seeking shelter and relief, they depended on the church. They had to go and stay in people's homes to be protected and preserved in the midst of their struggle. It was not an optional thing. Now, in our culture by and large, hospitality is optional. It's something that we do really only if we feel like it or maybe if our personality is inclined to it. And so this command right here, this third command, may seem like the least important of the bunch, but it's not. See, what Peter tells us to do here flows out of a devotion to prayer and a commitment to love. It's it's hospitality. It's the natural outcome of those things that we would be the kind of people who see our homes and our stuff as not truly belonging to us in the grand scheme of things. And so here's, just we'll, we'll pass through this one quickly here, but here's a great question that I've got to ask myself, we can ask ourselves, how am I doing in hospitality? Um, have we made our homes a place of privacy or a place of ministry? Y'all, my first, when, when I come home at the end of the day, I delight to push the garage door closed and enter in and it doesn't matter if the house is clean or messy, It doesn't because we're done, okay? Day's over. And it is a challenge for me to think of my home as a place of ministry, as a place that, that, you know, it's not to say we have an open home and we're giving keys out at church, okay? We don't do that. But to see our home as a place that doesn't belong to us primarily belongs to God, and it ought to be used as he desires to use it. And therefore, we ought to enjoy incorporating people into the life of our family. We think the same way about our stuff. Is it my stuff or am I open-handed with it? But it doesn't really matter if I lend it out and never have it returned to me because it's not really mine to begin with. See, that's, that's hospitality, that I don't see it as mine and no one else's. And God, you know, for some of us, again, you're more inclined to that by personality, or you grew up in an open home. This is just how it's always been, and so this is what we do. But it's a spiritual issue. It's not just a matter of personality or culture. We've got to be open-handed with our stuff without complaint, joyfully saying to God and to others, what's mine is yours. And for some of us, that's maybe the most challenging verse of all, to be hospitable. Are, are, are you looking for needs that can be met? Are you looking? What can I do? If I've got a dollar, you've got a dollar, right? Is that, is that my mindset? Are we hospitable? Uh, now, before we move on to the fourth command, I, let me just say, let me encapsulate here. We're called three things, right, right here that we've looked at. We're called to pray diligently, to love fervently, and to be joyfully hospitable. These are not just good Christian things to do. These are not just things we ought to do more of. When Peter calls us to do these things, I, I want us to hear this. These things are rooted in what Jesus has already done for us. These things are rooted in the gospel of God's grace. I want you to think about this. Jesus prayed fervently to the Father. What about? Well, one of the things he prayed for most was was you and was me. Read John 17. Jesus prayed for you. Jesus went before the Father on your behalf with, a, with the kind of fervency, with the kind of diligence that stretched him to the very end of himself. He gave everything. He prayed so fervently 
that he sweat drops of blood. Right? He did that for us. Jesus uh, loved us fervently. I don't think there's any doubt about that. He loved us enough that he would give his own life to cover the multitude of our sins. He did that for us before we could ever do that for another person. You know, I think about this sometimes. If, if there was, a, if there was a, a counter keeping track of my sins, just the number of sins, the external and internal uh, <laughs> sins of my heart, that thing would rival the national debt, y'all. Okay, that would, that would be for me, if I could see the number of the sins I've committed throughout my life, that would, that would devastate me, and it would you too. We're sinners. And yet Jesus Christ loved us in a way that covered the multitude of sin for you and for me. Every last one of them. Even the ones that I forgot I did and the ones that I'm ignorant of. He covered them all. That's how much he's loved you. And then Jesus was hospitable. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, he brought us in, didn't he? The scripture tells us that Jesus Christ, by his death and resurrection, has brought us into the very household of God and made us the children of God. He didn't just have us over for dinner. He adopted us into his own family. We are now brothers and sisters of the risen Christ and children of God the Father because of what he's done for us, the most hospitable thing that anyone's ever done for anyone else. He brought us near. And so these things are true of us if we simply have faith in him, that his death and resurrection has accomplished these things for us. They're now true of you forever. So to be a Christian is to joyfully give what we've been given. It's to expend now for the sake of others, all the things that God has already given to us. We're not drawing from an empty well here. We're giving what we've been given. And so these commands are not just good ideas. They are expressions of grace. Okay? And with that in mind, we look at the final command in verse 10. This one is, uh, requires a little more explanation, perhaps. In verse 10, Peter says, As each one, speaking about all of us, as each one has received a special gift employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God, and whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We don't have time to, to go through all of this in, in exact detail, but what Peter's talking about right here, this is a miracle of God's generous love. This really is a miracle. As each one has received a special gift. This is what the Bible calls spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is a gracious endowment of God, something he gives to every person who has come to faith in Jesus. Every believer gets one. That when a person becomes a Christian by faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit gives to us a gift, a special gift, a unique gift that exists for the service of the church, for the good of others. Uh, the Apostle Paul expands on these, if you'd like to study further, uh, particularly Romans 12 and, and 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, he also does it in Ephesians. He gives us a, a fuller explanation of what spiritual gifts are. Peter doesn't do that. Peter doesn't expand and get into the particulars. He really just gives us two primary um, uh, compartments here. He gives us, the, these are the two primary gifts. He says they're speaking gifts and they're serving gifts. Uh, and so just real quickly, some of us are gifted to speak. You may not realize it or feel that way, but some of us are called and gifted by God to speak, to teach, to encourage, to exhort. It's a gifting that, that 
takes its primary uh, manifestation in, um, in some manner of platform. Now, that may be across the, a coffee table, not necessarily speaking in front of a whole church, but it's a speaking gift. Uh, and then he says that, that uh, some of us are called to serve. We're gifted to serve, to administrate, to give, to show mercy, uh, to organize, uh, to do things that are more hands-on, perhaps, than speaking. But the point is that every believer possesses one, at least one. All of us have a gift, and verse 10 says, these gifts should be employed. We put them to work in serving the church. We are good stewards, Peter says, of the manifold grace of God. Now, that's right there. That's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. I've always been fascinated by that verse, that we are, that we are to be good stewards of the manifold grace of of God. Uh, you and I are here right now, not just as human beings, not even just as Christians. We are here, the scripture says, as stewards, as managers. That means that we have something that did not always belong to us and that doesn't ultimately belong to us. We carry it with us so that we might manage it. If you've ever been entrusted with someone else's money, you were a steward of that money for a, a certain time. If you've ever babysat, you were a steward. You were entrusted with something very precious. The, the children of, some, of someone's, someone's parents entrusted you. You were a steward of those children, right? And so to be a Christian, Peter says, is to be a steward of a special gift of God. Now, you may not think of yourself this way. You may not think that you're worthy, that you're good enough, that you have anything to offer. But listen, that thought that's within you may feel very real, but it doesn't line up with what the Scripture says. That if you have faith in Jesus Christ, then you do have an adequacy, a competency, something to give that is significant enough that God himself would give it to you for the purpose of the church. And Peter says when you've been entrusted with that gift, you've been entrusted with grace. God's manifold grace. That word manifold means multivaried. It means that God has given all of us something unique, something different, we're not all created the same, and we're not all meant to function the same. It's many, and it's varied. It manifests in all sorts of different ways. That's why the Apostle Paul likens it to a human body. That our bodies have many different parts, and they all serve different functions for the sake of the greater good of the whole, for the sake of our health. That's what we are. That's what the church is. We all exist uniquely, but for the sake of our function in the whole. And so the idea here is that God's grace is given in many different ways to many different people. That all of us here have it. Something to offer because we make up the body and therefore you are unique and precious here. You matter here. Your place is significant. Uh, none of us earned that, right? None of, us, none of us have risen to that platform on our own merits. It's something we've been given, right? And that's why uh, Paul, if you read through what Paul says, he says that those who seem to be less gifted actually receive greater honor because that's how God functions. It's not about putting people on platforms. It's about him and his glory. And so that's why all of us matter in an equal measure. Okay? Now, some of you know what your gift is and other of us are, don't know or we're not so sure. Let me just say practic practically, uh, there are online gift assessments. They're free, some of them online and they're good, they're fine. I'm not against them necessarily. Some of them, honestly, though, are just trumped up personality tests. Uh, I've done enough of them to know that. And so here's what I would recommend to you. Take, take, a, take a quiz if you want, that's great. 
But I think the way you discover, they didn't have the internet back when Peter was writing, just, you know, if you didn't know that. So they couldn't take, they didn't have assessments, okay? What they did, and what I think is the better thing, is that they simply served. The people of God served the people of God. And through their serving, their gifting given to them by God naturally rose to the surface. It became obvious because in the commitment to serve, even if that service was very menial and insignificant, what God has birthed in you will naturally come out. And more than likely, if you're around people in the church, they will identify it for you. They'll tell you, you know what, you're an amazing giver. You're always looking for opportunities to give. You're an amazing organizer. You take chaos and you make it work. You know what, you're, you, you really have a mind to love God's word and to mind the depths of it and teach it, and you need to be teaching. More than likely, the more you serve, the more people are going to recommend you to your gift and, and show you what it is. And so that's better than an assessment, in my opinion, is that, we, that we, we don't do it in an abstract way on the internet, but that we do it in a very real way as we serve one another. I think that's how it's meant to be. Peter tells us, lastly, he tells us what the grounding for these things are, and this is really the most important part. What grounds this? What, what gives energy to this, especially to our service? He says at the end, you see it, if you speak, speak the very oracles of God. Speak the very words of God. That means that those who are speaking gifts, we, God does not give us a platform to, to uh, trumpet our opinions and our human wisdom. That God gives us a platform, whether in front of the whole church or across the table with coffee, God gives us a platform to express the truth of his word. It's the book. It's not our opinion. And so you speak the very words of God. And if you serve, it means that you serve, he says, as with the strength that God supplies. That means that not only is your service dependent on God, we pray and ask God to give us the strength to serve, but our service is not meant to elevate us. We depend on God's strength because ultimately it's for God's glory. We don't do anything in the church of God in order for ourselves to be elevated. As much as a temptation as that may be, we serve as by his strength so that, Peter says, ultimately, God would receive the glory in all things, whether speaking or serving. His glory. So let's revisit that original question that we started with. If you knew, I mean, if somehow you could know that your time was, was short and you knew perhaps even the very day, my time is short, um, how would you choose to live? What would change? What would you do? I, I, you know, I poked fun at Tim McGraw a little bit earlier. I had forgotten about this lyric. I went back and looked at the lyrics. And right in the middle of that song, he does say something profound. Tim says, I finally read the good book, and I took a good, long, hard look at what I'd do if I could do it all again. Isn't that good? Of course, he just went skydiving again. I mean, if you heard the song, I guess the chorus repeats. You know, the guy goes skydiving like four different times. Um, I'm not sure really what changed. But he looked into the good book. Something in there got, caught his attention. You know what Peter says? When we look at the good book, when we acknowledge God's word as primary in our lives, we're told in no uncertain terms that our time is short. Whether we live to be 100 or whether we die tomorrow, uh, even at a ripe old age, the scripture is clear that life is but a vapor. It's here today and it is gone tomorrow, and therefore we ought not to boast. We don't boast about the future as if we're in control of anything. The time is short. And if Jesus doesn't return in our lifetime, the time is still short. It just is. And so we're meant to attach a deep sense of urgency 
to our lives. And that may feel like unsettling news for us, but it's actually very liberating. Why? Because God, in his word, does not call us to frantically search for things to give our lives meaning. That if time is short, what am I going to do to make the most of it? And human nature, in that case, may be inclined to, to do selfishly ambitious things. All the things I always wanted to do. All the places I always wanted to visit. Now, the scripture says, if the time is short, and it is, here's what we get about our business doing. Ordinary, faithful things. Martin Luther was right. That as Peter sees it, our calling is not to uh, um, uh, huge things that God would demand of us, but simple things that God expects of us as his children, that we would devote ourselves to prayer, that we would love one another so deeply that no sin could tear us apart. We're committed to forgiveness. That we would open our homes and open our hands to each other in joyful hospitality, and that we would serve one another as those who have been gifted by God's special grace. Now, it needs to be said that those are not small things. You may hear those and think, okay, what else? What more? These are difficult I, I, I submit to you that these things Peter's told us to do are far more difficult than riding a bull. Never done it myself, don't intend to, but I would rather ride a bull if it came down to it than to become this kind of person because this is hard right here. It requires something beyond us. It can't be done within the confines of my own flesh and will and effort. God in his grace has got to bring transformation to our hearts to produce this. That's the whole point of 1 Peter. Jesus Christ has recreated us. He's given us a new life, and therefore this is how we are now defined, and this is the thing that we now live by. And so my encouragement to us is not, hey, I wonder if God really wants me to live this way. The Scripture's already told us this is his will. We don't have to pray about that. This is how God wants us to live, and I believe he would bless us uh, if we endeavored to, to live this way. And so that's really the question for me. Do I view these issues, these commands, as issues of urgency in my own life? Would these be uh, at the top of my bucket list, as it were? Would I be willing to measure the effectiveness of my life by these things and not by anything else? That I am devoted to prayer and communion with God, that I am fervently loving you guys with a love that goes beyond me and that stretches me, a love that is unselfish and forgiving. Would I be open-handed with all that I have and would I serve as of primary um, life significance. That's who I am. Oh my goodness. If we would commit to these things, then what Peter says to close this section would absolutely come true for us. For you individually, for our church, and eventually our community. I know it would. That in all things, God would be glorified through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom belongs all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If that's what you want, if that's what I want, then God has graciously told us how. But I need to pray about it, because only grace will produce it. So let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Make us right now in this moment, Lord, to know what it is to hallow you, to make you ultimate. You are, you are everything. And you have taken us, you've taken a bunch of nobodies, a bunch of rebels, you've taken us 
running our own race in our own far-off direction, Lord, and you've brought us near by the blood of Christ. And you've made us your children. And Lord, it, it doesn't make any sense that we'd live any other way now, but to hallow your name, to make you our primary um, love, to give you all of our attention and to establish our lives, Lord, on your truth. And so make it so right now for us. Lord, convict us where, we have, um, where we've been ambitious in, in things that maybe don't matter at all. And Lord, make us ambitious, I pray, for these things today. Give us sound judgment and a diligent mind, Lord, to seek you in prayer, to, to really pray like our lives depend on you. Father, make us loving, not just not some sort of cultural definition of love, but Lord, fervent love that reflects the love of Jesus that we've been given. Father, make us hospitable. Open up our hands and even our homes to one another that we might experience the joy of fellowship. And Father, make us servants, servants, that we would be glad, happy, to lower ourselves if it meant elevating others, that we might make much of you. Father, we we pray those things and we acknowledge this stuff is really difficult. These things are not in our nature. And so, Lord, we need your transforming grace. So, Father, give us a look in these moments at the cross of Jesus Christ. The one who prayed for us, the one who loved us enough to cover the multitude of our sins, the one who brought us into your household forever the one who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, when we look at Jesus Christ, Father, I pray that you would give us a very clear picture of what this kind of life is. And now, Lord, give us the ability to walk it out. Father, would you, would you help us to really believe this? That life would never be the same, our families would never be the same? Our parenting would never be the same. Our church would not be the same if we simply put our eyes on these words and committed our hearts to walk it out. That you would be faithful, Lord, to see through the outcome and it would be pleasing to you. And so we pray it, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.